0: Hello, and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 467. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information, or to check out other shows in the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Simon Alexander-Ong, Simon's an award-winning life and executive coach, keynote speaker, and author of the new book, Energize, Make the Most of Every Moment. His work has seen him invited onto Sky News, BBC Radio London, and LBC Radio to be interviewed. His insights have been featured in Huffington Post, Forbes, Virgin, and The Guardian. In this conversation with Simon, we discuss the keys to boosting and mastering your energy, why and how to focus on what matters live a life of meaning and combat an energy deficit and so much more you'll find all the show notes on mentodial.com please do consider the drop in your rating and review and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes now for the show simon alexander ong well i have followed a lot of what you've done up to now and finally get a chance to meet you and to talk about your brand new inaugural book, Energize, Find Your Spark, Achieve More and Live Better. In your own words, Simon, how would you
1: like to describe yourself? Well, first of all, Minter, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's great to connect here and to share a bit about my journey and and also the book and how I would describe myself, I would say, in short, an optimist, somebody who believes in possibilities and the fact that life is just full of wonder and beauty around us.
0: Love it. Well, as long as you have the eyes wide open, you can see it, right? <laughs> Indeed. Um, so, yeah, you you've got this book and I would love for you to lean into this notion of how you came about being an energizer yourself, uh, specifically the the personal story that led you to it. If you could just give us that kind of a background, uh, which would be useful.
1: Sure. Well, where it began, Minter, is, is, is back when I graduated from university. So up until that moment, I had grown up with this mistaken belief that success was defined by my job title. Be a banker, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be an accountant. And so i pursued the banking route i went to the london school of economics and graduated with a degree in uh, in economics i then started in the financial services industry in the middle of 2007 which was probably the worst time to begin in that industry this was a year before the financial crisis of 2008 and, and just to make matters worse the company i started with was called lehman brothers which collapsed into administration 14 months after i joined and so This volatile start to my career was really an eye-opener in a number of ways. First, I had this experience of being out of a job, something that a lot of people I know hadn't faced for years. They would at least have some momentum early in their career to build a name for themselves in whatever industry they're in. But for me, I was already out of a job, not even two years into it. And so it gave me the opportunity to reflect on what I wanted to do. Which is something I never really did because I grew up with those beliefs that I had to work in those jobs that I mentioned just now and second when I was moving into my next job in finance after Lehman Brothers I I went to work in a a hedge fund the hours were punishing so I was into the office around six or seven in the morning I would often not be out until nine or ten at night and as a result my physical health suffered I ate junk I ate takeaway food. I didn't have time to exercise, and I got a little sleep. Uh, whatever sleep I could get was caught up on the commute into and back to from from work. And I, I burnt out from from this work a number of times. Uh, and, and there was a moment I had a conversation with my my girlfriend at the time, and she told me some harsh some harsh and hard truths which were, I was being killed by this. Um, I wasn't myself anymore, and I just didn't have the energy to do anything. It got to weekends and all I could do was catch up with sleep or watch TV box sets um, to to be my sort of escapism from the reality of what was going on. And so those experiences made me pause and reflect, first what I wanted to do and whether what I was going through was worth it in the long term if it was affecting my uh, physical and mental health. And so very shortly after, I had this heart-to-heart conversation with my my girlfriend. I handed in my resignation uh, to this particular company and I decided to pursue a job within the financial services industry because this was the only industry I could get a job in given my background. But I decided to pursue one which was more than nine to five. So it could give me the time after work uh, to start to think about what I really wanted to do and also had less stress. So it wasn't as intense as the uh, jobs that I had before that. And I think this really formed the start of my journey because I started to explore those questions of what success meant to me and what sort of impact I wanted to have in the world. And through that early process, I, I began to realize that many of us are exhausted, not because we're doing too much, but because we're doing too little of the things that make us feel alive and bring us joy. And because we're measuring our success and our progress against other people's metrics. So Minta, that's really where it all began. And that kind of laid the foundation to what I now get to do today.
0: So Simon, I've, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm nearing in on 500 guests. And every time I get somebody who is in this mode of like you do energizing and, uh, or focusing on happiness. The thing that I constantly hear is that they had to go through a tough time mm. to get to the point where they're going to do what they want. They're going to revolutionize their life. So, the question I have for you, Simon, is how do you think someone can get to this point without having to go through burnout? Or what, mm. what, is, what, what would you say to your younger self? Hey, little Simon. Um,
1: you know, don't follow that dream,
0: go this way. Mm.
1: Well, first of all, Minta, I think that's a great observation, because as you said, even the stories that I have read and heard about many of those who have had the, the wisdom and insights to have created a life that they now really enjoy. Those wisdom and insights have often come from setbacks or pain or challenges, which weren't always planned. You know, a lot of those, uh, experiences were unexpected, uh, very much out of the person's control. But if you are not going through a painful moment or you aren't about to lose your job and you're comfortable, it is a lot tougher actually, because when you're comfortable, you're earning a good salary, you don't have the threat of losing your job or being made redundant. Comfort can actually be a far greater obstacle in terms of moving towards your dreams. And for me, it's almost about creating that pain mentally in order to act as a catalyst for action. So many, many people talk about visualizing something in terms of the positive, like what do you want out of life? What would life feel like if this were possible? But for me, it's quite interesting to put a spin on that and to picture the alternative. What would life feel like if you continued in the same path as you were and took no action towards the things that are important to you? And connected to that is, it's this saying, I don't know who said it, but it's a, it's one that I've seen shared a lot that goes hell on earth is when you get to the end of your life and the person you became gets to meet the person you could have become. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about amplifying the pain from a mental perspective to spark the desire to want to change. And so because you haven't experienced that pain uh, in your life yet by starting to imagine what i could feel like from a mental perspective i think that begins to open the path to change so my my feeling
0: is that so many individuals don't necessarily feel comfortable and are sitting on their laurels they they will in their mind justify oh you know i'm really having a tough day uh, you know and i had this issue Uh, I got a bill I didn't expect or um, I fell over and hurt myself or, you know, things are, are, are not going as well as I would like. And yet I'm not, I'm just going to continue on. I'm going to just soldier on and then burnout hits you in the forehead. Mm. So my feeling is it's a far more invisible sense and that the shakeup that you had, is actually necessary to get into the notion of revolutionizing your life,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know. And another is funny. You talk about um, health is should be yours. It's not a side hustle. I, I see so many people saying, "Well, I do a nine to five, if you will, or another job, but the real passion I have, I have to squeak it in. You know, one hour after the kids go to bed, or a Saturday morning before everyone's awake." and I'm doing my side hustle, which I really love, but Mm. I wish I could make money out of it. And that transition from the safety, the security, Mm. and the immense fatigue that they're having, uh, they sort of have this defensive mechanism and their own justification for the way they can wobble through and get (laughs) through it without having the
1: ice pick in the forehead says, you gotta change. Mm. Mm. It's interesting because what you were sharing, Minter, is is very much me. You you know, I was in exactly that same position working in in that corporate world, wanting to spend time outside of work and on weekends to work on the things that mattered most. And, you know, when I share these stories to audiences now, I, I use the analogy that I felt like superman without the superpowers so i was Clark Kent during the day i walked into the office with an iron white shirt a tie and a suit jacket and in my gym bag was my black t-shirt and jeans and if i had a meeting at lunch or i had an event i was going to go to after work i would quickly go into the toilet cubicle change into my uh, customary black t-shirt and jeans and then go to that event as Simon trying to break out of the corporate world and into running his own business. And so I very much resonate with what you were sharing there. And for me, I I see a lot of people that talk about this desire to want to move out of what they're doing and into something more fulfilling, but few ever doing so. And I think for me, I didn't want to be one of those individuals. I wanted to actually build a bridge from where I was to where I wanted to be. And I knew that if I had to do that, I had to commit the time and the energy for that. I didn't want to see my job as the, as the end, which I think people can often see when you're just stuck in that job and you can't see anything outside of it. For me, I saw it as a stepping stone. I saw it as something I was grateful for. This was funding my ability to go out and explore what I really wanted to do. And so I was managing both. I was doing great at my job at the time which admittedly it wasn't as stressful as uh, as it could have been and that was designed on purpose um, and I was building the business on the side and it got to a point Minter, where I, I secured free coaching clients and I, I, I was reflecting in my journal that if I was to get a fourth then my day job would suffer and so would the quality of my coaching because I simply couldn't balance four clients with also my day job. And so it got to a point where I had to make a choice. Do I continue with my day job and just have free clients, which caps my potential, or do I quit the day job and focus 100% of my energy on growing the business? And of course, I chose the latter. I said to myself that if I was able to get free clients with just a small percentage of my time, able to focus on that imagine what i could achieve if i focused all of my energy on building that business and so that's what i did i handed in my resignation i said goodbye to the corporate world four months later after doing my gardening leave i was out into the world of entrepreneurship and it hasn't been an easy ride as i'm sure you can relate it hasn't been an easy ride but it's a decision i i haven't regretted since it's a decision i haven't regretted if anything part of me part of me thinks maybe i should have started earlier but uh, it's been an incredible ride since then.
0: I'm sure it has, Simon. My my thoughts go to people who are listening, who are not there yet. Hmm. They they might have the those three clients, quote unquote, side hustle going on, uh, whatever it is, you know, whether it's uh, enjoying gardening or or um, mixing fun drinks or I don't know, a mixologist. You know, that's actually that's a job. But they they don't transfer and. And I'm just wondering what kind of advice you can have Mm. to help make that tipping point, because obviously you have your experience, but when you're talking to somebody else as a coach, how do you make them pivot into this Mm. other world? What is it, what sort of vortex do they need to get through in Mm. order to understand without having, uh, you know, the, your, as you had your girlfriend say, you're totally Simon Mm. burned out Mm. and, without going through that moment? What is it that can say, shoo, get you through the other side?
1: Sure, I think I would share one tip on this, Minta, uh, And I think this is for anybody who's thinking about starting a business uh, or, or building a path towards what you really wanna do. And that is, and I learned this through, through trial and error as well, and that is you have to spend as much time on uh, the thing you love, so the product or the service on the business development side. So a lot of us, when we start our side hustle, we love the product, we love the service, whether it's painting or whether it's this new idea you've got. And we put all of our energy on that. The problem is, if you, put only, if you put your attention only on that and not focus on learning the business development side, then ultimately, you're only going to have a hobby. You're only going to have a hobby. And so you've got to invest some energy into learning, well, how do I develop the business? Who do I need to speak to? Where do I need to uh, visit in order to get myself known? So you've got to spend as much time on the business development side as you do your product or service. I see and I've spoken and worked with many entrepreneurs and businesses. Many of them are, are just focusing on the product and service and thinking the market comes to them. I've got an incredible idea. I've got a fantastic service. I've got a product that will revolutionize this industry. But they haven't really spent time understanding the business development side. And so all they've got is a really great hobby or a really great product that nobody knows. And so for me, the way you make that bridge from simply doing it as a side hustle for it to become your full-time hustle is to learn fast the business development side. How do you go about marketing? How do you get the word out? How do you start bringing supporters and fans into your community of what you're looking to provide? And that helps accelerate people's awareness about what you're doing.
0: I think that's fantastic advice, Simon. I was talking to somebody the other day whose husband was a tremendous uh, architect uh, uh, and devised a great product. And I think that in the business model side of it, sometimes it's about finding maybe a partner who can help you through with that. Because if you're a great product designer or a fantastic painter, like you were saying, it's not always obvious to develop the business acumen the business model it's sort of like that's foreign language you know i don't want to be i don't want to be a, a seller I want to be an artist you know?
1: <laughs> definitely and it's funny you raised that Minta, because if uh if you've heard warren Buffett talk about the skills that have helped him uh in, in terms of his success he talks about the importance of communication and he's often heard saying that in his office he only has one certificate hanging up on his wall and that is the certificate from the Dell Carnegie Institute for Public speaking. And he credits learning how to be a better speaker as helping him in his journey as a businessman. And again, that comes down to sharing your insights and wisdom with a larger audience. If we can't communicate or articulate why we exist and why we do what we do, then we're not going to be in a position to attract a following or customer base that wants what we provide.
0: So I was struck by one of the stories um, of a lady who was working in hospice.
2: Mm.
0: And had interviewed uh, people, or, you know, talked to, you know, interview, <laughs> you know, people on their deathbed, and it's something I've also observed that a near-death experience or the finitude kind of brings the into sharp focus what this life is all about, and and it's uh, and there was this notion that the, the the phrase I saw was, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself. And so Simon in in my view i see and it certainly resonates within your book this notion of of knowing yourself is so important to this whole
1: journey mm, definitely i think that knowing ourselves is the beginning of true wisdom if we are seeking to be wiser it begins with knowing ourselves because From my perspective, when I work with clients or when I speak to the audiences, uh, I I often mention that you can't have self-development without self-awareness. And that is because you simply cannot change what you're not aware of. And so the more aware you know about yourself in terms of your strengths, your weaknesses, your dreams, your fears uh, and, and so on, the more you understand on what the next step is the more you understand what is most important to you. And that is why the popular saying that goes the longest journey we as humans make are the inches from our heads to our hearts. It's so true. Because once we embark on that journey, it may not be the easiest, but it would be the most exciting and fulfilling that we will ever embark on. And once we arrive at whatever destination that is, we unlock the greatest source of energy that there is going. And that is this energy of purpose. Because once we understand what our unique skills and talents were meant for, and we know the vehicle to express them with the world, that is living in a state of flow. That's living life how it's meant to be.
0: I I very much hear that um, as someone else I've had on my show said, Michelle Navarez to name her. She said, it takes more than a lifetime to get to know yourself. Mm. And so it's definitely not a destination. It's just a a work in progress. Mm. And just capping or touching back onto this notion of of going through the hardship, the burnout that made you enlightened, if you will, or energized anyway. You talk a lot about the power of failure Mm. in your book as well. And somehow, Simon, I, I do get the feeling that being prepared to fail Some people might associate that with fear of of death, fear of losing the ego, but being able to go through hardship and pain is part of, ineluctably, part of the process.
1: It is, I mean, because it is inevitable that we will face some sort of challenge, whether personal, uh, from a personal perspective or professional perspective, it's just part of life. And for me, the ability to adapt and to respond better to them is really the journey from ego to humility. Because if we're operating from a place of ego, we're thinking, why me? Why didn't I get that? Why didn't this happen to me? Uh, You know, this, This isn't the right outcome. That's operating from a place of ego. But when we make that transition towards humility, our thoughts change. When we operate from humility, when things don't always go away or we fail or we have a setback, suddenly the questions that come up are more like, well, what is the lesson here? What is this trying to teach me? What are the opportunities that this has now opened? And when we look back in life, it is those moments that are the very moments that equip us with those breakthroughs.
0: (laughs) There's a breakthrough, Um, the aha moments. In your book, um you talk about, you know, how do you define success? Hmm. Um, Maybe let's start with how do you, Simon, define success
1: now that you're writing this book? Sure. Well, it's interesting because as I shared earlier, Minta, when I was growing up, my version of success was determined by other people. So it was determined by my job title, and how much I earned, what company I worked for, and my status. Now, as I've grown older and wiser, uh, and more understanding about my own self, for me, success is simply being better than who I was yesterday. Simply being better than who I was yesterday. If I'm just a tiny bit better than who I was yesterday, that is success. And I think if I can honestly look at myself in the mirror and say I am a little bit better than who I was yesterday, I think that all the rewards I seek will come in their own time. All those rewards will come naturally in their own time. and. And that's all I'm focused on now. Just be better than who I was yesterday. And as the Zen saying goes, be attached to no outcome and open to everything. Nice.
0: How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast, Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube. Which leads me to the story you mentioned about Bruce Lee. and the word ambition comes to mind. It's almost a dirty word these days, having ambition. If you couch it in, you know, let's have quality of life, seek your purpose, uh, be Zen. What's the place of ambition in in your philosophy, Simon?
1: Sure, I think ambition does have a place. So I think where the balance comes in is that if we're going to be thinking about a goal or vision that we want to bring to life, why not think bold? You know, we only have one life. We may only have one opportunity at something. It's like the book journey. Uh, when I received a offer or I received a proposal from a boutique uh, publishing house, I sat down and reflected on that offer. and I And I said to myself that, you know, if I'm only going to write one book, would I be happy with what I have on the table? And the answer was no. The answer was, well, if I got the chance, why not reach out to some of the biggest publishers on the planet? The answer may be no, but I would never know if I don't try. And so that's exactly what I did. I reached out to some of the biggest publishers on the planet. And fortunately, one of them, Penguin, responded. And that's how the conversation started. And so I think we can still act bold in the way we put out asks into the world. But at the same time, when we, when we touch on Zen and peace, I'm not attached to whether it happened or not. If I didn't get penguin, fine, I would have gone another route, but I'm not attached to that outcome. And so for me, it's having the courage to put a bold ask out into the world because so many of us are, I believe are setting very low targets and achieving them, whereas we could set some bold ambitions and bold visions and surprise ourselves. You know, we can surprise ourselves about what we can actually achieve if we set things that really force us to rise up and become the individual that can meet that vision.
0: I'm not sure it was in your book, Simon, um, but I remember seeing a quote, something along the lines of, it's not that we fail to achieve our big goals. It's that we succeed in achieving our mediocre goals.
1: Definitely, definitely. And that was, I believe it is from the book. And it was said by Sir Ken Robinson in, in one of his texts. Thank you. I knew knew I knew it from somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, he, he was right. Because what happens is that in a way, many of us, many of us are thinking small because of fear. We feared that could never happen. And so we set ourselves a lower goal and then we hit it but we're not really testing ourselves. We're not really showing what we're capable of by setting the bar higher. And again, for me, I don't see it as a dirty word. For me, it makes life exciting. Uh, it makes life exciting and almost dreamlike and cinematic to test what could be possible. You know, I've got a friend whose story I share in the book, Minta, She gave up uh, her life in Australia, a six figure job in PR to move to Italy to live La Dolce Vita. And she had no idea what was going to happen. Years later, she's shooting a TV show with Discovery Channel, National Geographic. She's married someone in Italy now, and she has a place in the Tuscan countryside. And she tells me every time I catch up with her that she literally feels like she's living in a cinematic dream. And why not? Why not? We've only got one life. Why not create a masterpiece or an experience that you can look back fondly on?
0: All right. So amongst the practical things, I want to get into business side of it in a moment, mm-hmm. but when you're uh, listening to this and you're like, man, I don't think I have it yet. What are, what are some of the, the the hot tips, or I know in your book, you talk about this, but about actually leaning into this purpose, you know, this Italy or this, whatever it is that each of us might have. And, and, and also want to be quite harsh about the amount of time that it takes and the who, who around you you might
1: need in order to accomplish it? Sure, well, I, I think the f- the very first practical tip that comes to my mind that I think is so important is your environment, uh, is the environment that you keep around you. Uh, because a question I often get asked me into is, what is the fastest way to make progress uh, in my personal professional life, in the areas that matter most to me? And I, and I say to them, the fastest way, if you, if you want the short answer, is design an environment around you that makes it impossible not to succeed. So design an environment around you that makes it impossible not to succeed. And here's some practical tips on how you can do so. Now, when I first started, of course, my environment was very useless in terms of where I wanted to be, because I would be spending my day with people in finance, I would go drinking with people in finance, and I would be socializing with people also in the financial industry. So not the best environment if I wanted to break out of it and pursue my passion. So what I started doing is shifting the people I spent time with, and that began with the books I read. That began with the books I read. They can become, if you will, your mentors in the early part of your journey. So that's what I started doing. I changed what I was reading. I changed the diet I was feeding my mind with. And then I deliberately and proactively pursued communities, mastermind groups, and, uh, and events in which I could immerse myself in the sort of environment that was aligned to where I wanted to be. And i tell you what, once you start doing that, there is a shift in the energetic quality of that environment. You just suddenly find yourself wanting to do so much more because you have the energy to push forward and follow through with the things that you told yourself you were going to do, but for whatever reason, you haven't done them. And this elevation in your energy within the field you're operating in is so powerful.
0: I do like the word elevate. It's in my own personal mission. So it resonates for me. All right, let's, um, Now focus on business, because a lot of the people who are listening are typically working in large businesses and maybe leading a team, maybe part of a team, and maybe feeling not quite as energetic as they need to be. What are some of the things that, as a leader, I need to be doing
1: to enable this type of energy in my organization? Sure. Well, I think there's two parts to that question, Minta. So it's your own energy first as a leader. And second it's the energy of the team that you're responsible for leading within your organization. So they're sort of two different uh, bodies here, so to speak. So Mm -hmm. in terms of your own energy, it's first understanding how your own energy operates because our body is always speaking to us. The question is, are we listening to it? Are we listening to what our body is telling us? and we have to keep in mind especially when you are in a position of leadership your energy is vitally important because the energy that you bring into the workplace determines the energy of the organization if you come into to the office and your energy is very low then of course guess what the energy of the rest of the organization is going to be very low if you come into the office and you are energized one morning then guess what the whole organization is energized because you are the thermostat to your organization's energy. Now, for you as a leader, one of the things you have to do is to schedule me time as much as you schedule your meetings, your social events and your holidays, because those things always come first, but we sacrifice me time. So we have to understand that in order to manage our energy, intentional rest is just as important as deep work and to find the balance between the two in our working week and working day is important so that we are able to thrive not just survive now once you are able to display characteristics of what i will call energizers then that would begin to rub off on your team and your understanding of how your team's energy operates will allow you to elevate their energy as well. And here's a great example, something that came out of a conversation I had with a client. So I asked this particular leader, what is the energy of your team first thing on a Monday morning? Now he smiled and he said that, well, I guess it's probably low. It's a Monday morning. It's after weekend. They've had a good weekend and they're coming to the office low on energy. And I said, so tell me next question. When do you hold your important meeting for the week? And he said, Monday. And I said, interesting. So you're holding your most important meeting for the week on a Monday. You want your employees to contribute and give their input to the conversation, yet you also now are telling me that Monday is the day in which the energy is lowest. And so knowing that we can move that important meeting to a time in a week in which the staff's energy starts to hit a peak. And so simple things like that will allow us to get more from our workforce than simply just putting things in the diary for the sake of just putting things in the diary. Once we understand the energy that we operate at and the energy of our team and individuals, we can actually create a schedule, create a plan in which we can show up better each day as our most productive selves. Thank you for that, Simon.
0: I, you talk about this notion of energy deficit that we have or that you are certainly experiencing a lot. And it's with my own filter. I am sort of geared this way. I, I do talk about energy a lot, but I also see a lot and read a lot about empathy deficit. Mm. And uh, I was wondering, especially in, in uh, reading the story about Diana Chow, what is your view on that relationship between empathy and energy?
1: Mm. Well, for me, they're very much connected. Now, empathy... The word that came to my mind when you said empathy, uh, Minta, was emotion. And now if we look deeper behind the word emotion, emotion is nothing more than energy in motion. So empathy is our ability to understand one another. And to understand one another involves understanding the emotions that each of us are going through. And for me, if we can give people the space uh, for them to share what is going on in terms of their own lives, That creates a certain energetic bond between us, uh, but also a way for them to understand themselves in a better way. So if I'm a leader and I'm having a conversation with a member of my team, I want to make sure that I'm giving him or her the space to be heard uh, and appreciated. Because for me, by creating an empathetic bond with my staff, that is how a business flourishes. And it's very simple. I mean, imagine if you were an employee and you had a leader that had a high degree of empathy. And that leader would give you the space to be heard. That leader would challenge you when you needed to be challenged. And that leader would come to you and say, are you okay? I've noticed you're not feeling yourself today and understand that we all go through hard moments in our career. Now, imagine the impact that would have on your energy if you had a leader with that degree of empathy.
0: Well, I so hear you, but I also think of the amount of time that it takes to listen and the clarity of mind in order to remove yourself from your worries. And then finally, I think of the fact that it's a personal question Mm. and that there's often a some discomfort if not inability to share what's really going on whether it's a health issue or a uh, an issue at home which could be held over me if i re- mm. reveal it in a workplace
1: mm. talk, talk us through that well minter first that's a great question and i think a lot of that comes to the culture that a company has if a company has a culture in which people feel psychologically safe to share that sort of sensitive information then that isn't a problem. But if they're in a culture in which they're afraid to share because they feel that there would be consequences, i.e. they may lose out on an opportunity, they may lose out on a promotion because of what they've shared or because they haven't done something, then of course they're going to be very selective as to what they share with their managers and leaders. And so It comes back to the environment that we are designing and creating for those around us. We need to establish trust so that when we say something, then, you know, it gets heard. But at the same time, we give people the opportunity to come and share with us. And I think that is that is key. Uh, I don't know if you've come across the uh, the Google project called Project Oxygen, but back in 2008, they conducted this survey on what made great leaders. And people were saying at the time, why would Google spend over a year conducting an internal study about what made great leaders? And that is because the department that had the biggest gripe with management was the engineering department. And when you Google, that is your biggest department. And so they conducted this study. They looked at hundreds of data points. They looked at all the qualitative interviews. They looked at the quantitative points. And they arrived at the conclusion that there were eight contributing factors Uh, to what made great leaders. And they ranked them in terms of importance. And number one was that the leaders considered to be great were also great coaches. Number eight was they had great technical knowledge. Now, the conclusion from this study was that just because you are a great salesperson does not make you a great leader. Just because you're a great analyst does not make you a great leader. And it's that ability, as you said, Minta, it is hard. And that is why, great leaders are often the exception because it's the effort that we put in into understanding our team creating a trusting space for them to show up as their best selves and express their talent that is not easy if it was easy every company would be doing fantastically well and nobody would have issues with their leaders and managers but that's not the reality the reality is there is so much more that can be done to give people the space and the confidence to actually share what's going on in their mind and be supported to become their best selves.
0: Yes, and and out of that work that Google's doing, I know that there was a lady called Daniel Kretek who who created, I think it's called the Empathy Lab or something like that, the empathy. uh, There's a whole consequence of that study, which um, I thought was very useful. You, we've talked about emotion a little bit, certainly empathy as well. Um, And in your book, you talk about how EQ trumps Mm. IQ. Hmm. i suppose my question within that is generally speaking iq is something that you have hmm. it's hard to work on your iq i mean i think that's the general principle it's a sort of a um, a natural component to your intelligence eq therefore or it would be an emotional quotient that hmm. looks at your emotional intelligence if you will e i otherwise called the question then is well how
1: does one if you don't have it get it Mm. Well, I think going back to what I shared earlier, the, the first step is almost raising your awareness that that is an area you need to improve. Because, of course, if you don't believe you have to improve it, you're not going to take any action to improve your emotional intelligence. And so that's why the first step is almost being aware that that is an area you should improve on. And so assuming that is taken for granted, you're aware that you have to improve. Well, how do you go about improving? Well, for me, part of that is understanding oneself. It's actually seeking feedback from other people. You know, how am I as a manager? How am I as a leader? And encouraging people to give you that feedback. Because once you've got some feedback, you've got a ground zero to work from. Now I know the areas I need to work on. Well, how do I go improving it? Well, one is I can seek out those who actually demonstrate the qualities that I know I need to improve on. And when we talk about skill development, that is exactly the thing I do. You know, I I know I will have some skill deficits and things that I want to be better in. So what I do is I go out and seek uh, mentors or coaches or people already doing uh, those things that I want to do and demonstrating the qualities I want to be better at. And I seek to learn from that. Well, what are they doing that I could do in order to improve that part of my EQ or that part of my skill set or that part of my, my talent? And then I come back and I work at it. And it's just like anything; the more we practice at it, the more we apply ourselves at it, the better we become in elevating. In this case, our emotional intelligence. Yeah, and
0: we often talk about in the world of empathy an empathy muscle, mm. uh, and the 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 problem with EQ per se, back to the IQ EQ, is that it's it's a god given skill, if you will, or yeah. well, if I'm <laughs> not religious, really but. Um, and what it strikes me, the, the key quality within that journey then is for leaders to have the vulnerability once they've, let's say, got the self-awareness to come out with, oh, I'm poor in this area. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to be an independent person, coaching and maybe running your own company, let's say you're a small entrepreneur, it's another thing to be, let's say, a middle manager, a vice president in a large organization and say, you know, I'm shit at
1: emotions. Definitely. And and it's interesting, Minta, because you brought to mind uh, an experience I had uh, a number of years ago uh, when I was in New York. So I I was going to New York to speak at an event. And the day before I was speaking at this particular event, um, I, I caught up with Simon Sinek. And I said to Simon, you know, you do a lot of work on leadership, and I'm about to deliver a talk uh, about leadership tomorrow with, with this particular company. And I'm wondering if you could give me just one tip that is actionable, that leaders or those who want to be in positions of leadership can embrace, what would that be? And he shared with me three words, which touches on a little bit of what you just said, Minta, which is ask for help. Ask for help. I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to be, why, why, how, where, how, (laughs) what? So, so he said, ask for help. And he said, the reason is, is because when leaders express vulnerability, it it doesn't mean you're any less of a leader. It simply makes you human. And that is what people crave in those in leadership positions. They want to feel that they are relatable. And so when a leader asks for help, it's simply saying, well, I might be in a position of leadership, but I admit, I don't know everything and I want to learn from you. And that requires a degree of humility to ask for help, to know that you don't know everything. And so for me, that was very insightful that for him, that would be the first tip that he would share is if you want to be in a position of leadership, if you want to improve your leadership capacity, be open to asking for help. Ask for help from people around you.
0: Have that vulnerability as Brene Brown would say. All right, the last two areas. Um, one of your chapters, I think it's a chapter or at least anyway, a statement, which definitely raised my eyebrows. I'm like, what on earth is this one going to be about? Be your own placebo. Mm. I was like, oh my God, does that mean I have to have a suppository that doesn't necessarily <laughs> work?
1: Well, first of all, Minta, you can see I I have a bit of fun playing with words in the book. Uh, and be your own placebo is... Is a bit of a play, if you will, uh, on the idea that when you think about it, all that we are, all that we're doing in, in terms of life, is we're living in the feeling of our thinking, moment to moment to moment. And so, there is no one reality. There is only our customized realities. So your perception of the world will be different to mine, different to my wife's, different to my friends or family. Now, if that is the case, that means that we are literally sculpting our reality moment to moment to moment through the thoughts that we bring into our mind. And this is where I touch on this uh, concept of be your own placebo, because at any given moment, you have the power to choose a different thought and thereby redesign your reality and shape it to whatever way that you want it. Now, we know the definition of the word paranoia. It is the belief that the world is out to get me. Why am I a victim? That people are trying to do me wrong in some way. That is what we call paranoid. Now, the opposite word to paranoia is pro And pronoia is the belief that the universe is conspiring in your favor. The life is working for you and not against you. Now, be your own placebo simply means that you can choose your own platter of beliefs or thoughts that is entirely up to you because nearly every belief we hold has been made up by someone else, whether that is society, whether that is our parents, our community. And so when we understand we've got that power to choose our own beliefs, that is how we become our own placebo. We're choosing the medication that will help our mind uh, create the reality that we want to manifest. The I want to put a
0: little bit of a, a dig in this notion of, The beliefs that we want to have, because I feel like in our journey to understand ourselves, we are the craziest masters of coming up with a belief system. Mm. As you said at the very beginning, with success being things that other people told you to have extrinsic success factors. And that's really important. I want to have uh, this big job. I, I really need to have this amount of money to care for my children or or whatever it is and and so you start creating these belief systems and so maybe talk us through the difference between a good placebo hmm. belief system and the other one
1: sure well i think simply put Minta a a good placebo or belief system is a belief system that is aligned uh to your vision to to, to what you want to create in your life and, and that is why almost the very first point for people to embark on this journey is just simply knowing what you want. And as simple as that sounds, many people just don't know. You, you know, we know what we don't want. I don't want to be in this job anymore. I don't want to be working under this boss anymore. I want to lose weight. We know what we want to lose or what we don't want. But when you ask people, so what is it do you want? You know, that's a bit of a, bit of a trickier question. They have to go and think about it a bit more. And So, if you don't know what you want, well, you don't have the context for your actions today or what beliefs will actually serve you uh, to help you get to where you want to be. And so, what happens is if we don't have any clarity on what we want, we just accept the beliefs we've always had because there's no reason to not accept them because we've got to where we are today. We're enjoying it. We're comfortable. Why change it? Only once we have clarity on what it is we actually want and we see that there is a belief system or habit system that will not help us get there that's when we start to understand we have to change that and so a bad belief system is a system that takes you further away from where you want to be whereas a good belief system is something that builds the ground and the foundation to help you get closer to what it is you actually want to be doing
0: very clear all right we're going to finish on one last piece simon which is um dealing with your energy and Mm -hmm. the beast that is social media and the internet and the rabbit holes and the pings and notifications. Mm. So give us uh one or two top tips on how to energize yourself, uh, or at least keep your energies high in this tech world.
1: Sure. with well, two uh two tips I would share. Firstly, uh, social media at the end of the day is just a resource, just like money is just a resource. Uh and I'm going to use an extreme analogy, but this sort of is a great way to demonstrate how to how to view social media. Now, if you take a knife and you and a knife is just a tool, but if you give a knife to a surgeon, it will save a life. If you give a knife to a murderer, it will take a life. But at the end of the day, the tool is exactly the same. And so when you use social media, you have to ask yourself, what is my intention for using social media? On the one hand, you can simply just consume all the content that comes your way and and, and just watch all the videos, but not really get anything else from it. So you're just a consumer of content, if you will. And that can eat up so much of your time. That can eat up a lot of hours of your day. On the other hand, you could use it with the intention to create and add value. And this is a different way to use social media. If you use it as a channel to share your insights, your wisdom, and use it as a way to positively impact the people who are watching or reading uh, or listening to your content online, then for me, that is a really good way to use social media. So I think it comes back to the question you have to ask yourself is, what is my intention when I'm using social media? Am I using it with a purpose or am I just getting lost in it and it it is a time suck? The second thing is when you use social media, don't dilute your energy across every platform because guaranteed, I'm sure a year after this uh, recording goes out, there'll be more platforms to go on and the year after, be even more platforms to go on. So for me, it's to focus your energy if you are creating content or using social media with that sort of intention on just two or three platforms. And then you can, if you want, distribute it on the other platforms, but focus on two or three main platforms. So to give you an example, uh, if you used YouTube and you shot a 20-minute video and you put it on YouTube, that becomes your main focus in terms of social media. Now, of course, from that 20-minute video, you could extract the audio and that becomes a podcast. You can then get that transcribed, which becomes an article. You can get that cut into short segments, which can go on your other social media platforms. But the key focus is on your YouTube channel. That means you're managing your energy by not having to be omnipresent on the others, but you've taken that one piece of content and you've extracted it in so many different ways. You have repurposed it, if you will, into multiple different forms of content. Now, when you do it in that way, it saves so much more of your time and energy.
0: I'm having heart palpitations, Simon. Good Lord. All the content I've created are not repurposed, as you suggest. Great to have you on the show, Simon. Um, So your book uh, is really all about the idea of mastering your energy, uh, which is key to your self-mastery. It's a wonderfully interesting read, I think in today's time, highly necessary. Tell us how can people order your book, energize, find your spark, achieve more and live better and also connect or follow you?
1: Thank you so much, Minta. So if you are interested in getting your hands on a copy, uh, go check out the website GetEnergizedBook.com. That is energized with a Z. So GetEnergizedBook.com. And if you have any questions or want to reach out to me, then Instagram or LinkedIn is the best bet. Those are the two platforms I spend most of my time on. So LinkedIn, simply search my name, Simon Alexander Ong, and, and you'll see me pop up. On Instagram, my handle is at Simon Alexander O. Great. Thank you very much, Simon. Minter, thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show or would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minter Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2000 and more blog posts on mintadal.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead: How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. <laughs>